It's a real privilege to be walking through Ephesians 4 with you today. I've had a great time this week diving into the passage. It's such an incredible chapter, and there's so much in there for us to learn from, I think. Um, and so I'm really excited to dive in. I hope you are too. And uh, would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you teach us by your word. We thank you that you equip us by your word, and thank you that you build up your church by your word. We pray that you would do that today as we open it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, so, my wife Sophie, she has, he has a, she has a brother who's just finishing year 12 who loves Japanese anime. And I was asking him last weekend, well, what's your favorite story at the moment? And he was telling me this story. I'm probably going to botch this for any kind of big anime fans, but um, he was telling me there's this story at the moment called uh, Spy Family. And as the name suggests, it's about a spy who goes and, and to be, get close to a target, he has to go and um, kind of start a family, basically. So uh, he has to, he, he finds a wife, marries her, he adopts a child um, so that he can kind of create this cover. Um, and... They, they can kind of be a family and get close to this target. Um, but what he realizes is that, uh, you know, being a spy is one thing, but learning to be a family is a whole different challenge. Turns out being a family can be hard work. And so the real challenge for him is to work out how do we, how do we become the family that we say that we are? It's, it's the gap between who they say they are and who they, even who they believe themselves to be and, and how they actually live that out. It's the gap between... And it's, it's that gap that we're interested in today. We're, we're thinking about the, the gap between knowing who we are and becoming who we are, between calling ourselves one thing and actually living out that reality. Um, and so we're not spies entering into a, a new family, but we've been told so far in Ephesians uh, lots of incredible, lofty truths about, about who we are in Christ. We've been told about... Um, how we're given every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been told how we, in Christ we've been raised from spiritual deadness to spiritual alive, to being alive in Christ. We've been told how the, the dividing wall of hostility is, is broken down and Christ has created one new humanity in his death. And these are incredible things that we've been kind of taught as we've been looking through the book of Ephesians. But it's one thing to kind of understand these truths, one thing is to, to believe them, one thing to say, everyone, say to everyone that these, this is a true thing, but it's another thing to learn how, to, how do we actually live those things out? How do we, how do we uh, if we are called one new humanity, all, all with, with no divisions between us, how do we actually live out a reality like that? And the reason that's important for today, so that, that's what we've been doing so far in the book. And as we come to Ephesians 4, it feels like it shifts gears a little bit. We, we move from uh, the language of kind of descriptions of who we are before God. And then in 4 verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That is, that is to say, we've kind of seen all these incredible things about ourselves, about who we are before God about who God is, and now we need to learn how to walk worthily of that calling, to live a life that lines up with all of those things that we've heard of in the first half of the book. 
And this section in particular picks up on the um, reality of, of the unity achieved on the cross. As Liz was saying before, um, it's, it's a living out of life as a new humanity. And so you, you might see that the talk today is titled Grow Together, which I think is a, a pretty clever title, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Actually, I didn't, I didn't even pick that title, but um, I, do, I do think it's a good one because it captures a lot of what the passage is about. It's about, um, on the one hand, it's about growing together, um, how all of us grow up to maturity as Christians together. But on the other hand, it's about growing together, as in growing in togetherness, growing in unity, growing towards um, togetherness, being united, being one. And so do you see, see the kind of double meaning there? It's about how we grow up together and it's how, how we grow together. You with me? <laughs> so we're going to walk slowly through this passage, what, what, what it, see what it looks like um, to grow together. We'll start with some foundations and look at the process of growing together, uh, how, how it is that we grow together. And finally, uh, we're left with a, a picture of what it would look like to be a church that's actually living this out. And so let's dive into the foundations of growing together. I wonder what you would see as the foundations of unity. If you were running a business or leading a family, I wonder what, what would be step one in bringing unity. I've already spoken about how um, you know, all of this is built on all the wonderful lofty truths that we've seen in the first half of the passage, how we're urge to live a life worthy of that calling. And so in some ways, that's the foundations have already been laid. But as as we move into this passage, Paul starts um, with checking our attitude. Before we can even kind of strive to seek unity, there are some foundational attitudes that we need to bring into the equation. Did you notice them as we read through? They were there in verse 2. Follow along with me. Verse 2 says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And only then does he bring it to, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So do you see those four foundational attitudes that we, that we bring to the equation? Before he urges us to be eager to maintain to the Spirit, he said... Um, instructs us to be humble, gentle, patient, and to bear with one another in love. Uh, and I, the Bible defines humility as thinking of others' needs above yourself. Uh, a, a gentleness as, um, it's sometimes tra translated meekness or literally littleness, recognizing that, that we are, are small and so uh, being gentle with others. And next he lists patience and bearing with one another in love. But I wonder why why those particular traits would be, if he's about to kind of go into this a big spiel about being united as a church, why would it be those particular traits that he starts with? I think they set the foundation, they prepare us to, to be united in Christ because the kind of unity that he's going to talk about, well, it's actually not going to be easy. It's going to require patience. It's going to require us to bear with one another in love. It's going to require us not um, to, to come humbly and gently, ready to um, disagree with others and yet embrace unity with them. 
so that's, that's the foundational character as far as our part goes. But even more significant than that is, is the found, theological foundation that Christian unity is a reflection of the very nature of God. Because, because God is one, we can be one. That is to say, we, we don't follow various gods who each have their own mind about what we should do. We don't, we don't each live out our own truth as we define it, as we find it. We're, we're gathered together as one body. We're led by one spirit. We all hold out the same one hope. We're all saved by the same Lord, baptism, faith. So because we all follow one God who is not just one among many options that are all valid, but is the one God who is over all and through all and in all. Because we believe in one God, it actually means that we all have the same basis to, to build our faith on. Our, our, our unity is found in God himself. And so those, those I see as the foundations laid for unity. If we believe that God is one, and we come together in, in humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Then, how does God actually grow us together? How does God bring unity and maturity in the church? I think that, that's the second question we're looking at today. And I think it's a really important question to ask because how you, bring, how you attempt to bring unity shows us what you think unity is. How you attempt to bring unity shows us what you think unity is. Think of the business owner who starts running lots of team building exercises uh, to, to bring unity. That tells us that what they're looking for is some kind of social cohesion that's going to help people to work together better. Uh, what, what about a, a different business owner who kind of tries to bring unity with uh, lots of vision statements and education sessions? They're, they're trying to bring unity around an idea. It's a different kind of unity. Or um, I, I think in the family scene as well, when, when we try to bring unity, um, how you bring unity tells us a, what, a lot about what you think unity is. There's this um, Monty Python skit set in medieval times where Sir Lancelot, in a burst of overzealousness and heroic gusto, has accidentally killed half of a wedding party. I don't know if anyone's seen that. It doesn't really matter if you haven't or not. Though the important part of, it, part of it is the minister sees a crowd kind of gathering together, starting to riot against this guy who's kind of, yeah, done this. And in a desperate plea to, to bring peace and unity, he starts calling out, come now, let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. It's a ridiculous scene, but, but it's one that struck a chord with a lot of people because I think it captures... Um, a very thin view of unity that is so prevalent in our culture. He wants, he, he's trying to gather everyone. He wants everyone just to be happy around each other. Even if that means setting aside the truth. I think it's struck a chord because it's one that we see actually quite a lot. Uh, we see it in the, in the families that we live in. that They come together each Christmas. That they know there's certain things they're not supposed to talk about. Because this sense of this unity, being happy around each other, is, is the more important things. And it can leave some of us in denial of the facts, living in spite of the truth. But as we look at how God brings unity in the church, we see that f far from a denial of the truth, it, the, God, the 
unity that God brings in the church is actually centered and grounded in the truth. And so, so come with me. Um, let's take a look at verses 7 to 13. How do we grow together? Well, the process starts in verse 7, when he says, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. Um, so that's, that's the beginning of the process. It starts with grace from Christ. What does that actually, the, the, uh, what does that actually mean? Uh, as we keep reading, it says, um, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to the people. And so this, this grace that he's talking about, um, I don't think it, be, it can be saving grace. Um, like we saw in Ephesians 2, if you remember, we're saved by grace alone um, because it's given to different people as Christ apportioned it. There's kind of different measures handed out. Um, instead, I think it's the gifts that Christ gives the church for the, for the sake of the church. It's a, it's a familiar idea in the New Testament. Romans 12 talks about the gifts that God the Father give, gave to the church, including kind of things like hospitality, um, teaching and um, mercy ministry. Uh, or 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And I think all these, these lists, they're not separate gifts. They're not kind of supposed to be exhaustive lists that we're trying to work out which one are we. Rather, the, the point is, in all of them, that God gives gifts to His people. And in verse 7, it's clear that He gives everyone gifts for, for serving. And here he, and as he goes on, he lists a few. So um, he kind of moves on to the psalm for a moment, comes back to it in verse 11. Uh, so Christ, gave, Christ himself gave, so we've been waiting. What, is this, what are these gifts that he gives? Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Um, and so this is not an exhaustive list of, of the kind of gifts that God gives. Rather, I think it's kind of a, a pointed list. There's a point in, in listing those five things. I don't know if you notice what's similar about them, about apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. The thing that kind of ties them all together is that they're all teaching roles. They're all those that in some way or another bring the Word of God to the people. And so Jesus gives gifts to the people and in particular, teaching gifts. And that uh, is kind of the first step in the process of bringing unity, is that it's actually grounded in the teaching of the Word. Um, but there's one part I'd, I've skipped over that psalm. So how, how does the, the psalm there support that idea? A lot of people find this bit really tricky, um, where he talks about ascending and descending and um, taking captives and giving gifts to people. Um, I think the reason why a lot of us get caught up on this is because there's, there's a little bit of background to the psalm that uh, the first readers have that we, we wouldn't, that we don't. So first, uh, you can get it just from reading the psalm. It's a psalm of God's victory. When it talks about him ascending on high, bringing captives in his wake and giving gifts to people, it's an image of a king plundering a defeated nation. He leads an army up a hill, defeats the enemy nation, and then brings back gifts to share with his people. That's a, a story of God's victory. The second important clue is, is that the he in the story, the one who ascended on high, the one who gave gifts to the people, and when you read Psalm 68, it's really clear who that person is. 
Um, that person is God himself. That's why the ascending and descending is important. It's, it's a puzzle for them. That's why he feels the need to kind of spend a couple of verses on it, because uh, for them, how could God, who is in heaven, ascend to the top of a hill it, uh, unless he's already descended? Does that make sense? So um, he's saying that that's why it's a support of Jesus being who this is, because Jesus was God who descended to earth before he ascended. And then the third clue is um, that this psalm was often associated with the Jewish festival of Pentecost that would have been read out uh, when they celebrated that. And so holding those three things in your head, I hope it's about the victory of God. It's, it's, uh, God is the, the he in the psalm and it's connected to Pentecost. So why is that significant? Well, it's because Jesus fulfilled this psalm in a surprising way at Pentecost. It, it wasn't by defeating and plundering nations. Jesus won the much greater spiritual victory over sin and death. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and uh, in that moment had, had the victory that this psalm talks about. And on top of that, on the day of his ascension, he said to his disciples, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. So he's ascended and he's ready to give gifts to his people. Uh, in the context of, of Acts, that gift is the Holy Spirit who comes at Pentecost. So what's the central thing we need to understand from this, this first section? I know there's kind of lots and lots of details around there. It's quite complex. But uh, what we, what, what it, what's the important thing to hold on to? It's that Jesus ascended on high, sending back the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, which established the first New Testament teachers, the, the apostles. And the gift of the Spirit continues to equip teachers um, going forward as well. And why is that significant for us? Well, it's important because it shows us what we should expect of how God builds His church towards unity and maturity. And it begins with the teaching of the Word. And now if you're thinking you're off the hook because you're, you're not an apostle, then think again. Jesus sent the gift of the Spirit to establish faithful teachers of His Word. Why? Did you see that? As He goes on. So, Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? Was to equip all of his people for works of service. That all of God's people would be prepared for works of service. Literally, that says that uh, all of God's people would be prepared for the, the work of ministry. So, uh, ministering to one another. So far from sitting back and leaving it to some, someone else, the whole point of this is that we're all... Um, gifted by this to serve one another, not in exactly the same way for each of us, but definitely uh, not, not with the excuse that we can sit back and leave it to them. Because when we're equipped to serve one another, um, it says then, to, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of, of Christ. So it's when God's people are serving one another that the church is built up towards unity and maturity. So I hope you can see the process that's described here. Christ gives the church the Word of God through the, His Spirit. Some people in the church teach the Word of God to the church, and then 
when the word of God works in our life, every person is equipped to serve one another and the church is built up. So out of all the things that might bring unity, it's not a silver bullet team building exercise. It's not um, all getting matching outfits. It's not being reprimanded to set aside the truth and play nice. Rather, it's centered and rooted in the truth. Um, And did you notice what kind of unity we're built towards? He lists two things, unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, Can you see how truth is central even to that? Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, And the second was maturity, as we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, The word mature there, it's a bit like grown up. It's It's a picture of a church growing up. And what's the fully mature picture of a person? What's, what would be the ideal grown-up church? That's one that would, would perfectly mirror Christ in, in the full measure of his fullness. Now, of course, we won't be able to do that. We'll, we'll always be marked by sin, but that, that's the picture we strive towards, is that we would um, grow up to unity and faith and knowledge of the Son of God and be mature, grown-up, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And that is an abstract picture, so it's great that, the, that Paul then expands on that image of, of what it looks like to be mature as a church, to be grown up in faith. And so as we keep reading, um, we're at our final point now, looking at uh, grown-up faith, uh, the, the picture of growing together. And there's kind of two dominant images we get as we read through. One is the, of a church that's not grown up. It's a kind of infant in the faith kind of church and the other is one that is is grown up so it's kind of an example of what not to do an example of what to do around that theme of, of growing up now some of you will have met my son Alistair he's 18 months and he's very clearly in the process of growing up I feel like every week he, he's kind of showing a new skill or a new word that he's learnt um, most recently he's kind of learning uh, to say no which is kind of a joy in some ways because that means he's kind of getting his independence, great thing, but also it does make parenting way harder. Um, but uh, for him, that's kind of, uh, yeah, being able to communicate, stand his own ground is, is actually a clear like transition point from him being an infant to him being a young boy. Um, learning to kind of stand his ground. But even for me, I'm kind of almost 30, and there's heaps that I'm still learning and heaps of ways that I'm growing. I, I hope that you uh, are also, no matter kind of where you are, how old you are, how, um, hope that you're still growing too. And I hope that we as a church uh, are continuing to grow up towards our maturity and unity. And so let, let me paint those two pictures for you of the two, kind of two extremes. On the one hand, the infant and unity and maturity, the, the, the one and the, uh, the other, um, that is continuing to grow and grow and grow. The infant is described there in verse 14. So look back down at your Bibles um, with me. The infant um, is tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there. It's, it's, it's an image, it's a picture of instability, of being unable to make up its mind about what is true, what is important. It's blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. You can imagine a church where every new idea that blows through seems just as valid as the last one, with kind of no um, point of reference to to compare it to. And so um, whatever theology is fashionable at that moment becomes the 
doctrines of that church, whatever's the latest thing, whatever culture pushes our way, whatever seems right at that moment, well, that's what we're going to hold, hold on to. Now, that's a picture of the, the immature, kind of infant kind of church. And I wonder what, what kinds of uh, winds of doctrine we as a church might be tempted to, to put our sail up to. Because there are lots of ideas that, that blow through. And even more so, I think, in our, in our digital age. They don't have to blow very far for us to have access to them. We can go and find any wind of doctrine that we like. If there's a teaching that you don't instinctively like, it's easy enough to kind of do a Google search and find normally someone who's come up with some clever and crafty argument about why that's not really what it says. Um, but that's what we should expect. He says that these kind of winds of doctrine, all these different kinds of teaching that blow through, I come from the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. That is to say that there will always be people who, who uh, try to massage the Word of God to say something that it's not saying. Um, and they'll do it cleverly. They'll do it, it'll be carefully crafted. Uh, but a mark of maturity is to work out how do we discern between what's actually the Word of God, what's clearly... Uh, God saying his word, and what is just kind of a cleverly crafted argument. And so, um, the truth is that these, uh, yeah, our, our unity and maturity um, is not grounded on whatever the latest thought is, whatever's kind of trendy and new and exciting. I, instead, it's grounded on the eternal truths about God. And so, we need to think about what, what, what's the alternative to being blown and tossed about by every new idea we come across? What would it look like to, to stand firm? I, kinda, I think about the, um, what do you call them? Wacky, wavy, inflatable arm, flailing man. You know, you know the thing I'm talking about compared to kind of a statue planted um, unshakable by the wind. How, how do we be like that? So we're not kind of blown around by every new idea that comes through, but how do we stand firm? How do we know where to plant our feet in the eternal truth about God? We'll take a look at verse 15. Here's the alternative that he gives. He says, uh, don't be infants, tossed back and forth, but instead, so we're expecting the alternative now, instead, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So there's, there's the alternative there, is speaking the truth in love. And there's so much just in that one phrase. So, so let's just take it a phrase at a time. First, it's about speaking the truth. Church unity relies on an embracing of the truth, not a running away from it, not a sweeping it under the rug, not, not turning a blind eye, but rather growing up as a church built on the truth. But that has to come hand in hand with love. We're talking about a package deal here. We're not talking about two different competing principles. It's not like you can have truth on one end and of the scales and love on the other, and we have to kind of find the right balance of truth and love. You can't say things like, we've had enough truth for the moment. Let's, we need a bit more love to balance it out, or we've had enough kind of lovely things we need to speak some truth in to kind of bring the balances to uh, the scales to balance 
because it's not about balancing truth and love. It's about speaking the truth in love. It's about um, telling the truth because we're so filled with love that we wouldn't allow that person to possibly have a blind spot and never know. It's about being so committed to the other person's good or even to the other person's holiness that we would be willing to step up and speak the truth to them. They're a package deal. You, You need to have truth that comes out of a place of love. Because to tell the gospel truth without love is a mockery of the truth. Because the gospel is all about God's love for us. To to show gospel love without telling the truth is an emptying of the gospel because the gospel is the truth, is the truth about Jesus. And so we've seen today that there, there can be a gap between what we know and how we live. And especially when it comes to church unity, And one alternative we're given there is, is to speak the truth in love to one another. I wonder if you've ever had someone speak the truth in love to you. I wonder how that might have shaped you and your experience. Uh, whether that's kind of to speak a truth that is encouraging and building up, or whether it's actually to speak the hard truth that we, we know that you need to hear. And because of love, we're willing to, to have that conversation I know that some of the, those conversations that I've had have been profoundly, have profoundly shaped me. Uh, they haven't been easy conversations, but um, in fact, they're almost always difficult, but they've uh, been really significant in growing me up. I remember even when I was um, kind of first on my P's, we were, convo- I'd, uh, yeah, we were convoying from a church event, and I kind of found myself a few Ks over the limit, I kind of turned a blind eye, kind of wanted to get there. Uh, but when we got to the other end, one of my church friends who was in the convoy pulled me aside and said, Do you, like, did you know how fast you were going? And I said, I think I might have seen that I was a couple of Ks over. And they said, does, does that match up with kind of your Christian values and the things you say about kind of wanting to, to respect the law? And I said, ah, <laughs> what, like, what a gut wrench. Uh, just to be called up so straightly, I... I wasn't used to that, wasn't expecting that, but I knew that this person, uh, we, had a, we, we knew each other and I knew that they loved me and this was coming from a place of love. And so I um, accepted it and I changed because of it. I tried kind of really hard over the coming months to change that. And I wonder if you've ever had someone so bold as to speak the truth out of love for you. It's not always easy to hear, but that's why I think the foundation that Paul said at the start was humility and gentleness, patience and bearing with one another in love. Because the the first part of of correction is being correctable. And so what would it look like this week um, to cling to the truth that God is one, that every Christian in this room follows the same God, is part of the same body, is led by the same spirit. I wonder if we could come to one another with, with the humility and gentleness and patience and, and readiness to bear with one another in love to the point that we're actually ready to hear from God's word even when it speaks against our lives, even when it reveals the things that we're doing wrong. Um, so to kick us off, I know that I'm only relatively new here. I know you don't know me that well, uh, but I would love if you, you would be willing to, to speak the truth in love into my life. If you see an area of sin in my life, 
um, that I might not be aware of, I would love if you would come and tell me uh, about the blind spots that I might have. If you see some way that I, I could be better serving the people around me and loving the people around me, I would love if you would come and speak the truth in love into my life. I hope that we could be the kind of church that is ready to receive that. I think that the picture that um, is painted here of the mature church is one that is ready to receive the truth, to embrace the truth, um, and be united in that truth, even when it differs from where we stand right now. So let, let me read that one more time. It says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I think that's such a beautiful description of a church working together uh, to love and support and serve one another as, as we all individually kind of grow up towards Christ-likeness, but also as we, as a church, grow together um, to, to unity around the truth. And so I'm, I'm going to close now. Um, we're going to pray in this next song that the Spirit would work in us to, to, um, to move us to unity, and, and I'm going to uh, pray that now as well. So would you join me in prayer? Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for, we, we thank you that you are one, uh, that we don't need to kind of work out uh, which truth to follow, but that we have the truth, that we hold the truth, and we pray that you would help us to be united in that. We pray especially for the times where uh, um, it's difficult to see where we differ from who we should be, and we, we pray that you'd um, help us to, um, yeah, close the gap, that we would live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.